You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Good morning and welcome. My name is Lise Grande, and I am the head of the United States Institute of Peace, which was established by the U.S. Congress in 1984 as a nonpartisan public institution dedicated to helping prevent, mitigate, and resolve violent conflict abroad. In fulfillment of its mandate, USIP is committed to promoting public discussion on issues of national security and on our foreign policy. The Institute regularly convenes diverse roundtables and bipartisan congressional dialogues on a wide range of topics from great power rivalry to countering violent extremism to promoting the American model of peace building. The Institute is particularly proud to host the Congressional Newsmaker Series, which welcomes elected officials to USIP for discussions on pressing and important issues. USIP is honored to welcome Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut for this year's first Newsmaker Conversation. Our topic this morning is U.S. policy toward Tunisia. Since 2011, when the Arab Spring started in Tunisia, perhaps no country in the Middle East or North Africa has enjoyed so much support or goodwill in Washington. This goodwill, however, is rapidly evaporating. During today's discussion, we will be exploring why and what the U.S. can do to help Tunisia get back on a democratic path. Senator Murphy was elected to the U.S. House of Representatives in 26 and to the Senate in 2012. He is chair of the U.S. Senate Foreign Relations Subcommittee on Near East, South Asia, Central Asia, and Counterterrorism. He is also a member of the Senate Appropriations Subcommittee on State and Foreign Operations and the Senate Appropriations Subcommittee on Defense. Senator Murphy is one of our strongest defenders of international human rights and the need for clear-eyed American leadership abroad. Along with senators from both sides of the aisle, Senator Murphy continues to argue that America needs to act now to address the threats to our national security posed by our adversaries. For more than a decade, Senator Murphy has also been one of the most important voices on Tunisia both as a champion and more recently as a critic. We're honored to have you here today, Senator, and with your permission, may we invite you to give remarks. Well, Elise, it's wonderful to be here with you, and I want to thank um, USIP for all of the tremendous work that you do uh, to lift up our peace building, peacekeeping efforts, to lift up American diplomacy, and to uh, give us a forum. Um, policymakers, administration officials to try to work through some of our most difficult foreign policy conversations. And I'm glad to have a, a full room here today um, to talk about a very small country um, with an outsized impact on our uh, debate about U.S. role in the region uh, and the future of democracy in the Arab world, Tunisia. Um, 
I want to thank you personally for the help that you've given me in my maturation as uh, a foreign policy leader. Um, you and I, um, I can't know, remember how many times we talked about the crisis in Yemen as uh, I was um, starting to build a coalition in the Senate requiring us to step up and do the things necessary to support peace building there. And uh, I appreciate all the work that you did making sure that we kept as many people alive as possible um, over a conflict that lasted for far too long. Um, but we're here today to talk about um, a country which, um, you know, as you mentioned, for a long time was um, you know, a real calling card for what was possible in North Africa, for what was possible in the uh, decade after the Arab Spring, a country that seemingly had gotten it right, had been able to transition from autocracy to democracy, had given a voice to its people. I remember going there. Uh, on uh, our way to the Munich Security Conference shortly after the Arab Spring with Senator McCain. There was a period of time in which John was sort of touring me around the world. He took me under his wing for my first few years in the Senate, and one of our stops was in Tunisia. We brought a big bipartisan delegation there to really celebrate the progress that Tunisia had made and to try to dream up new ways that the United States could support their transition to democracy, support the growing independence of their military. Um, and we you know, left just full of hope for what the future would bring to Tunisia. Fast forward to my second trip there um, just two years ago. Uh, I brought a handful of my colleagues there to meet with the new president. We were the first delegation to visit President Saeed. Uh, I walked in concerned, but with an open mind. Um, and I left a two-hour meeting with Saeed pretty well convinced that this was a country spiraling downward away from democracy. Um, you know, Saeed, in that meeting, talked a good game. He, of course, is a student of history. He explained to our delegation all of the lessons that Tunisia was learning from the American experience with democracy. And it was just that uh, the version that Tunisia had adopted after 2011 was the wrong version of democracy. And he was going to lead the country to a, a different democratic future, but a democratic future nonetheless. But at the same time, as I listened to him, you saw all of the typical trappings of a sort of despot in waiting. I mean, he was conspiratorial. Everyone was out to get him, right? We didn't understand how threatened he was and how essential he was to the future of the country. Uh, and I, I left much more concerned than um, I arrived. Uh, and unfortunately, all of my worst fears and many of our worst fears have come true since that visit in 2021. We'll go over the litany of decisions that Saeed has made to you know, effectively give up to, uh, on democracy and the rule of law. But I think we are looking at a country today that on its current path um, has no real role for the Tunisian people in making a collective decision about the nation's future. And the United States can't sort of continue business as usual. We've got to make some decisions about what our policy will be. The Biden administration has, you know, I think made a bet on the Tunisian military, and we can talk today about whether that is a wise bet. I would argue that we should make a bet on civil society instead, uh, and that we should be um, trying to do some, some 
significant things today to try to put power in the hands of the people rather than putting power in the hands of the military that has largely stood by, acquiesced, and sometimes facilitated Saeed's transition away from democracy. Um, so this is a critical moment, uh, and I put it in a larger context, and I'll end here, and then we can have a conversation. Um, I um, think Joe Biden cares a lot about democracy. Um, I think this administration has made it clear that um, they want to lead with American values. But at some point in the region of the Middle East and North Africa, you have to walk the walk on democracy, not just talk the talk. And my concern is that whether you are looking at US policy towards the Gulf, Egypt, or Tunisia, we talk the talk on elevating democracy and human rights, but we don't necessarily always walk the walk. Despite 60,000 political prisoners in Egypt, you know, the budget requests we get from the administration still call for one billion plus in aid to that country. There's clearly been no reorientation towards the Gulf, towards the Saudis or the Emiratis. And the budget requests we're getting for Tunisia and the policy that we see from the administration still basically look like business as usual. And you know, people are noticing right, that we still stay in business with brutal dictators. We still fund regimes that move away from democratic norms. Um, Tunisia at the top of the list. And I think it becomes hard mm -hmm. to claim that your priority is democracy and human rights and the rule of law if you don't change your policy um, when governments start to change their commitment uh, to uh, participatory democracy. And I think you've got to put the conversation in Tunisia in that broader context. Um, Senator, in 2020, you made a statement where you said it's important when a country is taking steps toward democracy that the US supports them a point you just emphasized now. That was only two years ago, and you're in a very different position now, and Tunisia is in a very different position. At what point in those two years did you suddenly go, no, nope, lines up, time's up. The country has gone too far in this direction, and we have to take disciplining very strong steps to show our displeasure and hopefully to incentivize the leadership to change course. When was that moment for you? Yeah, I don't know that there's one moment, but I certainly, as I mentioned, walked away from that meeting feeling like I had a good idea who Kai Saeed was. Um, to the extent there was one moment after that, it was likely the sort of sham referendum. Um, you know, Saeed obviously made a good pitch in the meeting. He said, as I mentioned, you know, listen, our prior... Um, our prior version of democracy didn't work. And there's not a lot of argument against that claim, right? I mean, Saeed is popular today. He was even more popular back then, um, in large part because the Tunisians had sort of tested out democracy and they didn't love it, right? It wasn't delivering. And it's a reminder for us here in the United States that you know, people support democracy um, because to them, it's the most effective way to deliver quality of life, right? Democracy holds this promise that it is a means by which 
to most fairly and broadly distribute resources, right? People, you know, don't have a philosophical commitment to democracy um, in so much as they believe democracy is the best way to protect themselves and their family. And in Tunisia, they looked at the democracy they got and it hadn't delivered for them. And so Said comes along and says, well, I'm gonna give you a different version of democracy. It's not gonna be as a direct democracy as you know, we used to have, um, but it's still gonna be a democracy. Uh, and there's still gonna be rule of law, there's still gonna be protections. Um, but then that promise he made simply didn't come true, right? He ultimately continued to grab power for himself. He continued to crack down on dissent. And then ultimately he runs a referendum in which, you know, 11% turnout suggests that there's no broad buy-in. And so when, when, when that news arrived, it seemed pretty clear to me, and that Saeed continued to move forward with these changes, even with only 11%. Turnout that to me suggested that um, you know the fix was in that Said was you know intent on consolidating power, notwithstanding the broad dissatisfaction with his reforms from the public. Um, Senator, you talked about the importance of the U.S. as one of the world's leading democracy for standing up for other democracies and aligning our foreign assistance and our actions with that principle. Does that mean? that when a country starts to backslide, we should immediately cut off assistance, cut off assistance in chunks, try and incentivize different kinds of behavior? What in practice does it really mean to support our principles with our action, to align those more directly? What does it mean in general, and what does it mean in the case of Tunisia specifically? Well, Congress made a decision decades ago um, that we were only going to be in business with countries that observed you know, basic standards of human rights um, and participatory democracy. That's the Leahy Law. But the Leahy Law is, observ is you know, observed in the breach, right? It, it, um, it's on the books, um, but administration after administration wave it and wave it and wave it and wave it. Um, and as I mentioned, I just think the world notices, I know the world notices, that we claim to prioritize human rights and democracy, but then over and over again, we fail to live up to that standard. No, I don't think you do it all at once. I think you give countries like Tunisia that are moving in the wrong direction um, clear messages and signals that our continued economic and military support is dependent on your continued commitment to the rule of law and to democracy, and that if you continue to move in the wrong direction, that there will be consequences. Um, I, you know, and I, you know, the administration has reduced aid. There have been consequences to Tunisia. There have been changes in the relationship. Um, but I would argue that those changes have not come quickly enough and that this is the time, now is the time to make a more serious reorientation uh, of our relationship. My feeling is that the better bet is on civil society and that the military today um, you know, has, has, I think, shown its willingness to, um, A, stand on the sidelines and largely watch Said consolidate power and then often participate in that consolidation. Um, and so to believe that um, a continued major investment in the Tunisian military is the, um, is, is the prescription for what will ultimately reverse course, uh, I think is probably naive. 
Uh, and so to me, we should be you know, likely reducing aid to the military given uh, their decision to back Saeed's consolidation of power. But we should be increasing support, or at least holding even support, for civil society. Um, and the budget request we've gotten from the administration is the opposite. It's proposing holding even funding for the military, sort of teasing out that we might even increase support for the military, but cutting support for civil societies, cutting support for uh, economic aid. Um, I probably would, would suggest a strategy that reverses um, uh, that funding. One of the distinguishing features of the Tunisian military over many decades has been its non-political character. And in a region of the world where that's not always the case, Tunisia stood out. But you're describing a situation where the posture of the military is changing, seems to be changing. What do you think's going on? Why is that happening now? Yeah, I don't think that I have the answer, but the military has had plenty of opportunities to sort of stand up to Saeed and say that he's gone too far. You know, obviously they, you know, took part in the decision to shut down the parliament, disband, disband the legislature. It was Tunisian troops that were standing outside of the parliament, um, barring the doors. That was a clear signal that the military was no longer going to sort of stand as an independent entity protecting the uh, Tunisian people. You've seen this dramatic increase in the militarization of justice. That could not happen without the acquiescence of the military. So you've seen all sorts of troubling signs that the military has decided to integrate themselves into Saeed's power grab. I don't know the reasons for those decisions. Um, but I think the United States has to sort of recognize that reality. And listen, there are plenty of places in the region where the United States continues to make big bets on militaries as forces for stability. Um, I've been a big believer in continuing U.S. support for the Lebanese armed forces. Um, but in Lebanon, the uh, armed forces are legitimately out there every day protecting the Lebanese people, protecting their right to protest during the big protests uh, of, uh, during the pandemic in Lebanon. It was the military that protected the protesters, uh, fundamentally different than what's happening in Tunisia today, in which the military is facilitating the crackdown on democracy and standing aside as Saeed goes around and rounds up the leaders uh, of the democratic um, pro-human rights resistance to that crackdown. Um, Senator, you talked about how important it is, the arguments for continuing economic assistance. And of course, the U.S. has been a strong supporter of the efforts by the IMF to negotiate a bailout loan that would help the country based on or contingent upon the country also doing some deep structural reforms. Now, those have been difficult negotiations. There have been successes. But more recently, it appears that the negotiations are stumbling. There are also signals that the country's leadership has reached out to the Gulf to no avail. Debt financing does not seem to be coming from those sources. There are current indications that China has indicated that they would consider a bailout package and even consider doing something China usually doesn't do, which is debt financing. 
If you could reflect with us on what the implications might be to the U.S. and to the region, to the Mediterranean, if Tunisia and China become preferred partners with each other. Yeah. So I think this is something we you know, have to watch uh, very carefully. Uh, Tunisia is an important country. It has port assets that are vital to regional and global trade. Um, we continue to have important reasons to have uh, and maintain a security partnership with Tunisia for a long time. You know, we saw a fairly remarkable number of individuals leaving Tunisia and leaving Tunisia and joining uh, extremist groups in the region, um, much a much larger number than you would think from a relatively small uh, country. And the intelligence that we gather in Tunisia matters to our fight against global uh, terrorism. So we have plenty of reasons, both economically, strategically, and from a security perspective, to continue uh, to work on this relationship with Tunisia. Um, but I think we have to think about um, the cost to China of ultimately taking on the burden of failed states that have no path for conventional IMF financing, countries that even the Gulf isn't willing to make a bet on. Um, I get it that right now we live in a world in which we perceive there to be zero-sum politics between the United States and China, in which any place where China has more influence must come at a cost to US security. It may be, though, that China is in the middle of overextending itself and making some pretty bad bets. So query, if China is left doing significant debt financing with a handful of countries that have no legitimate access to the world banking infrastructure, is that a strength or a liability for the Chinese in the long run? If the United States and Europe get the relationships with the financially viable countries, and China gets the relationships with the countries whose economies are falling apart. Is that good for China in the long run? Or is that good for the United States in the long run? I'm not saying you walk away and hand Tunisia to Chinese financiers right now. I still think we work with them. We try to get the IMF in there. We try to give them terms that are reasonable. But I don't think, as a strategic matter, we should put ourselves in a race to the bottom with China. It doesn't always mean when there's a Chinese offer on the table that the United States or the United States and Europe have to give a better offer. Um, and maybe Tunisia becomes one of the test cases for that theory. Um, Senator, you mentioned Europe. And we know that a number of commentators in Europe have stress the importance of controlled immigration from Tunisia. Obviously, recent experiences in Europe make them very sensitive to large-scale migration. As the economy continues to stumble, if it does, if there isn't a bailout, the possibility of larger numbers of migrants seeking stability and employment opportunities in Europe increases. Does this put us adjacent to our European allies on Tunisian policy? Does it mean that they would be pursuing a different set of questions as we pursue a more principled set of questions? 
What are your reflections on that? Well, you've certainly seen you know, countries in southern Europe um, pushing harder on an IMF deal without conditions. Um, and you know, my guess is that you know, they are looking for short-term stability and security. Um, in democracies, uh, you are often looking for short-term gain. Um, but I would you know, caution our friends in Europe to look at the long-term and the medium-term as well. Yes, the IMF could step in here with a deal with few conditions. That would patch things up for months, maybe years. Um, but you'd be back in a crisis once again. You'd be necessitating another bailout that would be even less palatable to, the, uh, to international financial institutions a few years from now. And so, to me, um, we should work hard to get alignment with Europe on Tunisia, and we should work hard to convince them that this is the moment uh, to use that financing package as a mechanism to uh, try to get this country back on the right path. And if you, you don't do it now, it frankly will be harder uh, years from now when the economic crisis is even worse, when you've had two more years of economic mismanagement, political mismanagement. Um, now is the time, and I think we've got a little bit of work to do to convince all of our European friends that this is the time to drive the harder bargain. Um, Senator, before we turn to questions from online and from the floor, if you were with President Said right now, and he said to you, what signal can I send you that would rebuild your confidence in the direction I'm taking the country and my leadership? What would you say to him? Well, I think there's some very small steps that he could take immediately. I think one of the most worrying developments of the last several months um, is his decision to criminalize contact with U.S. diplomats in Tunisia. Um, still today, there are activists uh, and Tunisian citizens locked up in part based upon their decision to talk to the U.S. Embassy. That has to be a hard line for the United States. That action alone merits consequences. And one small step that the president could take is to release those individuals as a means of making clear that um, no one is going to jail because you talk to or you participate in um, uh, actions or dialogues taken by the US uh, embassy. Um, so that to me would be a concrete short-term step that the president could take to show um, that he is opening up this dialogue. Um, but as we talked about just before we took the stage, he has also decided to you know, use this tried and true dictatorial tactic of locking up political opponents as a means to try to quell what is growing unrest, right? I mean, there are you know, signs that the very powerful unions inside Tunisia, uh, the Bar Association, uh, human rights groups um, have made the decision to come together and really build a, a national dialogue about an alternative to the vision that Saeed has uh, presented. And he has met that uh, unity of purpose amongst his critics uh, with arrests and detainments, um, including 
the people I mentioned that had had contact with the U.S. Embassy. Uh, so uh, I think that a decision to reverse course and to release those political opponents um, is the clearest sign that he could show that he is making a commitment to the rule of law and an open dialogue about the future of his country. Senator, we had a question from one of our online participants that pointed out that the president remains, according to opinion polls, popular. So if you have leadership that's moving in one direction and the population supports it, what does the U.S. have to say about that? So as I mentioned, um, there's a reason why Saeed is popular, not as popular today as he was when he first took power. It's because the democracy that preceded Saeed's power grab was corrupt and ineffective. And it is a reminder that democracy in and of itself is not the solution, only effective uh, uh, democracy. Um, Saeed has made a bunch of promises um, that uh, have given rise to his popularity, but those promises are coming undone. And this is what we said to him you know, nearly two years ago when we met with him. We said, listen, you, know, you are popular today. You will likely be popular for the foreseeable future, but um, that popularity uh, will vanish the minute that people figure out the promises that you have made about economic growth cannot come true according to the terms that you have set. So I think you are going to you know, see um, this bet the president has made go bad very, very quickly. Um, and so our sort of plea to him is to you know, make these economic reforms today side by side with democratic reforms as a way to um, save your country, um, but ultimately is, uh, uh, frankly, a, a way to preserve your, your own position and your own legacy. Um, Senator, we had another question about um, a sensitive issue. We know that the African Union has condemned recent statements by the president that um, were racist in nature about African migrants that were coming through Tunisia, their status. Um, do you have reflections on that? Certainly the African Union was deeply distressed by it, condemned it immediately. Yeah. Well, this is Saeed's uh, you know, version of the great replacement theory. Um, we, we have you know, that movement mainstreamed into American politics. Um, well, let's take a minute to reflect on ourselves here. I mean, I think it's kind of silly to have a conversation about you know, any foreign country without understanding our own shortcomings. Um, what Saeed has said about um, South African migrants sort of corrupting Tunisian society is distasteful, it's wrong. Um, the United States should use its moral authority and voice to push back on that narrative. But that narrative is present in American politics. It was midwifed and espoused by our prior president. Uh, and so this is another example of where our ability to push back on dangerous narratives abroad is compromised by our willingness to allow those very same narratives to become legitimized inside of our political dialogue. And so, yes, we should push back on the story that Saeed is telling. But so long as we allow for that same story about 
Muslim migrants to the United States or Central Mexican, South American migrants to the United States corrupting American culture, um, it makes it very difficult for us to finger wag uh, at Kai mm -hmm. Saeed. Senator, thank you. May we invite questions from the floor? Yes, please. Hi, Senator. Uh, ben Fishman from the Washington Institute, more importantly, uh, Hartford native, and nice. uh, very jealous of your greeting the Huskies championship, uh, yeah. for those who aren't familiar. Uh, but we're not here to we relish. We can do, listen, ask a question about relish, it, I'm relish ready. Relish <laughs> I'm ready. My five-year-old daughter knows that uh, a Sunogo is number 21, so. <laughs> Um, anyway, uh, we often talk about carrots and sticks, leverage um, over other governments. Um, Saeed doesn't appear to respond to those. He doesn't want the IMF program. Um, and uh, we're pushing on economic reform, economic bailouts. Um, he's specifically said, um, you know, uh, called the IMF diktats. Um, and then, uh, as you rightly pointed out, threatening our diplomats, and, and the, which should be egregious. Um, so what other points of leverage uh, do we have over, um, as you say, an authoritarian would-be or whatever, uh, who's not responsive to our uh, policies or policy de demands? Thank you. So, uh, listen, let's, let's be honest. Um, we have limited leverage in Tunisia, and we shouldn't pretend um, as if we have the tools that we need. And this links into a broader critique that I have had for a very long time of U.S. foreign policy. We have made a decision to hamstring president after president by giving them a military budget that is 20 times the size, or a military and intel budget, that is 20 times the size of the democracy, human rights, and economic development budget that each president has. Uh, and so what are we left with in Tunisia? We're left with an ability to fund the military, but very limited offers um, to make and very few tools uh, to use uh, when it comes to non-military areas of influence. So yes, we have the IMF and we've got the Millennium Challenge, but we've got a development bank that is largely irrelevant because of its size. China is able to come in and make these offers because it has an international development bank that is 20, 40 times the size of US development financing institutions. Um, and so we're left to argue with international institutions about the terms that they provide because we have no capability to do that unilaterally. Second, Saeed dominates the information space, dominates the information space. When we came into Tunisia a couple of years ago, um, we had a hard time getting meetings with the opposition because the information ecosystem was polluted with this narrative about the United States and the Muslim Brotherhood and Anada being one. 
right? And so, um, you know, I came into the country and find out that, that I was an agent of a political party in Tunisia that I had never met. Um, but that was because Saeed and allies and those that were trying to undermine the United States, perhaps from the Gulf, um, owned the information space in Tunisia. And we had no effective means to push back because what do we have? The Global Engagement Center, which is funded at a pittance compared to what other nations' information capabilities are funded at. And so another decision we could make as a country is to dramatically upscale our ability to fund truth tellers mm -hmm. around the world in places like Tunisia. Not US messaging, but US support for domestic narratives and fact checkers and objective media sources that can tell the real story, which is that the United States is in fact not an agent of Inada, not an agent of one Inada member who <laughs> lives in Washington DC, um, as the story was when we arrived. Uh, so we've just made this continued collective decision to give away leverage because we fund the military um, at a level that gives them everything they need and funds anti-disinformation efforts, economic development uh, efforts, um, pro-democracy and pro-human rights efforts um, at a level that constantly leaves them wanting um, compared to the funding levels for the forces that they are aligned against. Sir. Uh, Bill Lawrence, American University. Um, I drive through Connecticut on the way to Massachusetts all the time. That doesn't count. <laughs> <laughs> nice try. <laughs> um, so I, uh, I wanted to, I missed the first couple minutes, so I know you sort of began to touch on what I'm talking about, but my colleague says not as far as I'd like to take it. So the, the coups in Sudan, the Burkina Faso coup, Mali, there was, a, there was a wave of coups, Guinea, you know, right over to Sudan during the same period where Saeed um, uh, did his president, what I call the presidential coup. Um, and we were very quick to cut off assistance those cases and were unable for Tunisia, a major non-NATO ally, and you know, for, the, for strategic reasons. And, and, and you can argue, well, it's too little too late right now to suspend aid. Um, I mean, MCC is effectively suspended. They need the IMF financing. Um, there will be cuts in assistance, and, and the earmarks going away is probably a bigger deal. But the, um, we don't seem to be getting through to Saeed for the reason Ben Fisher was talking about. And, um, we haven't said enough about uh, the, the psychological profile of this president. But one thing I know from having worked on the Libya desk and Tunisia desk at state um, back when they were dictatorships is you couldn't always control what dictators said or did, but you could jolt them to attention and sometimes take actions. But the actions had to be dramatic. So why not consider a temporary, you know, Sudan-like suspension of all U.S. assistance for a month, you know, or, or that kind of thing, a sort of jarring action that doesn't say we're giving up on you as our ally, but that this won't stand, uh, rather than these sort of piddling things and, and, and non-actions and, and, um, uh, uh, and, and, and other um, uh, actions that don't really jolt them to, to, to have a reaction in Tunisia. Um, the other thing I would say is... Um, and I don't think you probably mentioned this, but it's also worth mentioning that 
our lack of attention to Tunisian democracy is now infecting Libya. Um, and uh, we're more and more, it's like, well, if the U.S. is backing Saeed, which is the narrative in the region, the U.S. is backing Saeed, you know, then we don't have to really go back towards democracy. 100%. And I was wondering if you had anything to say about no, that. No, I, uh, 100%. And I, I did sort of try to put this in context in my opening comments, which is that our, our decision to sort of stay with Saeed, our decision to wrap our arms around Sisi, our decisions to deliver really no meaningful consequences to the Saudi and the Emirati behavior over the last um, half a decade, of course has consequences uh, outside of the confines of those bilateral relationships. Of course the world looks at this and says, you know, the United States doesn't really care about democratic norms and the rule of law. And if we have a good mill-to-mill -mill relationship, we can probably keep them out of our business when it comes to democracy and governance. And that's what you'll hear is that, well, you know, notwithstanding all the terrible things that Saeed says about us, you know, the mill-to-mill -mill relationship is still good, right? Um, we still talk to those guys. Um, people figure that out. Um, people figure out that model. Uh, and ultimately, um, that's not good for the United States. In a, in a world in which the fight for the next 50 years is the fight between an autocratic model that is frankly just much more attractive than the one midwifed by the Soviets um, and the democratic model, um, which is hurting today. So uh, yes, obviously this matters in Libya. Uh, it matters in Turkey. It matters throughout the region. And to your first point, Listen, this is what I'm here to argue. What I'm here to argue is that this is a moment for a much more significant pivot uh, when it comes to uh, the amount of financing that we provide to, uh, to Libya and that we've got to, excuse me, to Tunisia, that we've got to deliver a pretty forceful message now, both for practical purposes internally, but for broader messaging in the region and the world. Hi, Elizabeth Hagedorn, I'll monitor. Um, I'd like to follow up on this idea of using U.S. aid to incentivize Saeed. Um, were the U.S. to reduce military assistance, as you suggest, I'm curious whether you think that would actually impact Saeed's behavior or the decision-making of those around him. Yeah, I don't know the answer to that question. Um, I think there is a continued moral and strategic cost to providing significant levels of assistance to a country that has turned its back on democracy and human rights, a country that is locking up individuals for um, communication with the U.S. Embassy. So whether or not a reduction in military financing changes Saeed's behavior, I still believe it is in our interest uh, to make that change because of the impact it has on our broader fight to support democracy uh, around, uh, around the world. Um, I just think there is a moral cost to the United States when we stay in business with um, leaders that are turning away from democratic uh, norms. Um, we don't know the 
you know, the details of Tunisia's talks with China. I think for a long time, Saeed was playing us off against the Gulf and had hopes that the Gulf would deliver. Um, it appears that for the time being, our Gulf partners have decided that they're not interested in being part of a bailout unless there are reforms. Um, and, you know, we'll see about the kind of offer that Tunisia gets from China, but, you know, when Saeed and his people get down into the details of it, um, they may find it to be pretty unpalatable, um, and it may cause them to come back to the table with the United States and Europe and the IMF. Um, and so I, I think that this is the moment to drive a harder bargain with Saeed, the combination of driving that harder bargain and uh, his coming to terms with the potential enormous downside of doing a debt financing deal with uh, China could uh, end up with um, a restart of significant and productive discussions with Western financing institutions. Mr. Senator, a final question? Uh, thank you, Senator. Uh, Sean Tannen, a journalist with AFP. Uh, you, you've touched on the IMF uh, issue quite a bit, but I wanted to ask you a bit more directly. What, what do you think can be done and should be done right now with the IMF deal? Um, do you think there is, there's a way to leverage it to put more pressure on, on seed, or do you think that that's, uh, that's not something that's effective? And also getting back to what you were saying about the, um, uh, about the, the administration placing its bets with the Tunisian military. Um, through, through the Senate, through, through funding, do you see that changing at all? Do you think there's a way for that to be changed? Thanks. Well, if I believed that the Tunisian military was a true independent institution, um, then I'd be supportive of continuing uh, our funding levels. Um, I just don't believe that the Tunisian military is independent enough to deserve the continued level of support that they're getting from the United States today. In particular, you're seeing the dramatic increase in the use of military courts to come after Saeed's political opponents. Um, uh, that development alone uh, shows us uh, that the military has decided to um, take Saeed's side in one of his most uh, important crackdowns uh, on civil society. Um, listen, I'm not, I will not claim to you to be involved in the weeds of the IMF discussions with uh, Tunisia about the terms of the, uh, of the bailout, but as I said before, I, I think this is a moment in which you need to demand reform uh, in order to get a deal with uh, the IMF. And I think if you don't demand those terms today and just put off that tough discussion for another few years, um, it will be an even more impossible discussion two or three years uh, down the line. So this is a moment where I think you've got to d demand both economic and political reforms in order to get that uh, deal with the IMF. And again, I, I, I think there's a chance that the terms China will offer um, will um, prove to be pretty unpalatable. So I don't think it is outside of the realm of possibility. 
that we can still do a deal between the IMF and Saeed, despite the things that he's saying, uh, that he's saying today. Mr. Senator, we're at the end of the discussion. Are there final reflections you'd like to share with the audience? Well, you know, back to this question of you know, why have we treated Tunisia differently? Why didn't Tunisia get a sort of quick cutoff? Part of it is that, you know, Said is incredibly charismatic. Said tells a very good story, um, having you know, spent time with him privately about how um, you know, he will deliver democracy to the Tunisian people, but just on a different platform than what had come previously. And I think we have wanted to give that promise that he continues to make time. Um, but the other reason is that we held Tunisia up for a long time, right, is our success story in the region. There was, there was a, um, an investment, a narrative investment that we made uh, as, a, as a nation and as a transatlantic alliance uh, in um, the success story of Tunisia amidst all of this disappointment in the region following the Arab Spring. Um, and we are disappointed that Tunisia didn't stay on this path towards um, democracy. But to me, it, 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 coming back to this broader conversation I want our country to have, um, our failure to even get the smallest country <laughs> in the region on a path to democracy um, suggests that our democracy toolkit is fundamentally broken. That our, our inability to, to keep even little Tunisia on a path to democracy tells us that something is broken inside of our foreign policy toolkit. Uh, and that's why I will continue to argue that our decision to have more employees of military grocery stores then we have diplomats in the State Department is a really, really bad bet for the United States going forward. Um, and so I wish we weren't in the situation that we are today. Um, much of the blame lies at the feet of President Said, but we need to take ownership as a country for the mistakes we've made in the way that we have resourced president after president. Um, essentially deciding um, to refuse them the capacities that they need in order to grow democracy and protect democracy around the world. And I think that when we step back um, and have a full discussion about what has happened in Tunisia and what has happened with the U.S.-Tunisia relationship over the past few years, it's a story about Saeed. It's a story about the failure of Tunisian democracy and Tunisian political leaders to deliver for their country. But it's also about a failure of American foreign policy uh, to provide the support for nascent democracies and democracy movements around the world that they desperately need, as opposed to the level of support that we are able to deliver to militaries around the world when they come calling to the United States. And I hope that um, we put this story of Tunisia inside that broader context. 
Mr. Senator, thank you for your commitment to peace and stability around the world, for your promotion of democracy, and for being one of the most trusted voices in the United States on foreign policy and national security. I hope everyone joins me in thanking the Senator. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts. Thank you.